0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today, we've got a large live studio audience, well, live online anyway, from the Upgrade Collective. So you're going to get a lot of good questions at the end of the show, and I'll be getting a lot of good feedback during the show. So I really like the energy that happens when my membership and mentorship community, when we're all together and get to do these interviews. This is a second time our guest today has been on the show, but he's got a brand new book with only 534 pages. We're going to go through and learn a lot of cool stuff today. You've probably heard the term "magic bullet," and if you ever think about that, where where did that come from? Well, it turns out that a scientist named Paul Ehrlich figured out that phrase, or he he came up with it in 1906, and He's a guy who won a Nobel Prize for important work in understanding the body's immune response that later helped us to understand some of how cancer spreads and what we can do with chemotherapy. So he was looking for a magic bullet for the immune system in cancer. It turns out we have a magic bullet. And it's one that is free, uh, some biohacks can be expensive. Most of them work on mechanisms that are free. But breathing might be the biggest and best magic bullet we have today. And our guest today, who is Patrick McCowan, has put more than 20 years of research to find out why. Before breathing blew up, see what I did there? <laughs> so much in the last couple of years. <laughs> He's rolling his eyes right now. <laughs> um uh, Patrick was on the show. I think he was my first major guest on breathing with the work he does with the Buteyko Clinic. And since then, this new book, which is very encyclopedic, it matches very nicely with James Nestor's book. James Nestor wrote a very a popular science book about this. So there's a lot of just really cool stuff that's come out. That says, why well, you do this one thing right, it's probably as important as eating. So here we have it on the show, one of the world's leading breathing re-education experts. Patrick, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Thanks very much, Dave. You are a bit of a crazy person, and in fact, you and James are both similarly crazy. Um, are you guys buddies, James Nestor and you? you must yeah, know each other. we know
2: we know each other. Um, James reached out to me about four years ago. He was writing the book for Penguin, you know. So yeah. Brett is a small world in in terms of. I think we all know each other, so it's um, yeah, it's it's information always crosses, and people we cross paths as well. So it's it's an interesting space.
1: It happens in um, uh, in all the different areas of biohacking. We've got the Biohacking Conference coming up where I do my best to, to cross-pollinate things. So guys, biohackingconference.com. I'd love to see you there. Are a couple thousand people in Orlando having fun in the sun with smiles and hugs and everything. Who would have thought? But uh, the idea is to bring it together, allow cross-pollination. But what I find interesting is going back to 2002, it's almost 20 years ago, you, you're in <laughs> in Moscow doing you know, this crazy breathing stuff. And I think James was just doing his first stuff. I had done my first holotropic breathing about the same time. Uh, and so there's this, these weird breath pioneer guys who just get into it and stay into it. So what I want to understand is, okay, what made you go to Russia? That long time ago, yeah, to do this weird thing, like it, it's so odd. At least back then, totally.
2: It was. But you know what? Life sometimes directs you, directs you in mysterious ways. As a kid growing up, I had asthma. I had a stuffy nose, and uh, if you have a stuffy nose, your sleep is really impacted. So I would fatigue, poor concentration, and I was always kind of, you know, yeah, feeling that something was not quite right, but you're not quite putting your, your hand on it, you know, so I came across a newspaper article in 97 and it spoke about the, the work of a Russian doctor. And he said two things, he said, breathe through your nose. And he said, breathe less air. Now this was news to me because I'll give you an example. I was at the university in Dublin and I was going, I can remember going into an exam hall in my finals and I was quite anxious going in. This was back in 96, 1995. And I took a walk for three minutes before going into the exam hall. And I took these full big breaths because that's what I was led to believe was the best right thing to do. And I walked into the exam hall totally spaced out. And for me, it was entirely the wrong thing to do. So when I came across the importance of nose breathing, I started using the nose and blocking exercise. It worked. So I knew there was something in it. I started breathing less air and the temperature in my hands increased. So I knew there was something in it. And then I taped my mouth that night. And I used BreedRite strips as well to keep my nose open. The first morning, I don't remember much out of it. The first morning, I was it good or bad? I don't know. But I kept sticking with nasal breathing during that day. And I taped my mouth closed again the second night. And I woke up the second morning. And it was the best night's sleep that I had in 15 years. Now, that was enough for me. You... So, you
1: did that a long time ago. I, I've got to say, you've had a, a meaningful impact on my marriage because it was after our first interview. That was maybe episode 430, 434, I think. Uh, and we're above 800. So, this is a while ago. Um, but I started taping my mouth, and my marriage immediately improved. But I, I don't know if that was from breathing or just because I was talking less. Have you ever considered that?
2: Well, there's a relationship between, you know, <laughs> I think with snoring and with sleep, uh, 50% of the adult population wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. And if yeah. you wake up with a dry mouth, you're not waking up feeling refreshed. And there's another thing as well for men. Men should wake up with an erection in the morning. And if they don't, it's not a great sign. And it's more likely to happen when they have lousy sleep. So I think it's something for the men to, to pay attention to and maybe the females as well.
1: I have been taping my mouth for a couple of years now um, because of that interview and it really does improve sleep It measurably reduces snoring. Uh, and my daughter um, has been taping her mouth for probably a year and a half. I got her the the strips that are kind of flexible. And after a while she said, no, I just like the normal tape. Mm-hmm. So every night when she goes to bed, she does it. And it's, it's made a noticeable difference. You, you wake up feeling better. So if a, you know, a 13 year old will do it of her own accord, yeah. there's something to it and you don't wake up with a bad tasting mouth. So that has been meaningful for me. And as someone who was called me a mouth breather, I had chronic sinusitis for 15 years. (laughs) So how is this possible? Well, it is possible. So I I, I really, truly have to thank you uh, for that. And for anyone listening, yeah, it sounds weird. Tape your mouth at night. I don't know if Victoria's Secret makes mouth tape or not. It doesn't matter. Um, You will really like how you feel in the morning. So it's, uh, it's just, it's worth it. And I wanted to just give you a shout out to say, you're the guy who turned me on to that and you're the reason we sent out your tape in the the Dave Asprey subscription box and all that. So thank you, man. Um, It was a big deal. And now you've got a new book that's like compared to the oxygen advantage, your new book is, is encyclopedic in every kind of breathing. And I'm wondering if I can actually get you to teach listeners some of the cool techniques Mm -hmm. from the book on this interview.
2: Yeah, of course. I wanted to have it as much detail as possible. I just feel that breathing has been too left of field and it hasn't been put out there properly there. You know, I really, I really need breathing to be taken seriously and the only way it's going to be taken seriously, if we can support it and if we can support it with whatever science is out there and granted, you know, science doesn't tend to like breathing in terms of it's not getting major funding, etc. But at the same time, There's information about breathing that's been around for a hundred years, but it has been buried in PubMed. And it's really important to get this into the hands of the general public. Like you spoke about kids, female breathing, the male population, you know, it really has application for everybody. And I suppose, Dave, I'm working now with elite police forces, SWAT, Navy SEALs, Air Forces, Olympians, and when you see high-performance individuals taking it on board, you know, there's something in it. And it's great to see it getting out there. But at the same time, yeah, the book, I had to show that there's a lot of science supporting this. This is not just something that's taught by a load of hippies, lads going around with robes and beads and sandals and everything. No, no, no. This is something we have to start taking seriously.
1: It It's one of those those books that stands out because... There's so much skepticism that you've got to put it all out there. It's a similar thing with, uh, I wrote my anti-aging book. Like, there's so many people saying, oh, you can't do this. You go, but look, people have been studying this for hundreds of years, and there's all this knowledge, and we just ignore most of it. And it it's kind of frustrating. So you put the knowledge together, and you say, actually, there's so much here. Anyone who's halfway curious can't deny that it matters. You could you know, argue about eight second hold versus five second, but that's what data and science and universities are for, but you can you can't argue it, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. So I've become over the really this is probably looking back, your influence was was the first one here. If every day we're combining 30 pounds of air and a pound or so of food, <laughs> I know an awful lot about how to manipulate the food to get the results I want. Right, Upgrade Collective, you guys have learned tons of this in, in the class. But we don't really learn that much about how to manipulate the other things we're combining with that, which is the air, the rate of flow. We're all happy doing intermittent fast. Well, how often should you air intermittent fast be? And, and I touch a little bit on carbon dioxide and air fasting, in other words, breathing. But it's maybe five pages of the fasting book. So when you look at this and that equation of air and food, do you how much do you think food matters versus breathing matters? Do you have to get the food right for the breathing to work? Do you have to get the breathing right based on what you eat? How 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 correlated or connected are they?
2: One influences the other and it's kind of strange because people with bad diets tend to have bad breathing. If yeah. you, if you go into, you know, go into a fast food restaurant and you see somebody who's quite maybe obese there and look at their breathing and look at the food they are eating. Now, what's what's feeding into the other? Just the human body is so complex, and there's so many bidirectional relationships. And you know, if our breathing is off, we can pretty feel lousy. I was in increased sympathetic drive, increased stress response, poor sleep, caught for breath, feeling air hunger. You know, you don't tend to want to eat good food. You tend to just go for comfort, and you don't want to do a physical exercise because if you go out for a walk or a jog, you feel excessively breathless. So, there is something that two go very much hand in hand. And I'm going to be biased towards the Brett. You know, I really will want to, because I think, in actual fact, if I was to improve one thing, I'm writing a new book at the moment. And this is going back to the, the problems I had when I was in secondary school that's high school and university. I had poor concentration and I had a poor attention span. Yeah, and too. society demands that we have good concentration and attention span. Society demands it, but nobody is teaching us how. How can we improve concentration and attention span? So if, in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that needs to be revised for the, today's world. And deep sleep is the foundation. That's what we have to get right first. And then functional breathing. And then breath-aware, body-aware, mind-aware, and self-actualization. So, you know, I don't think we have anything without that deep sleep. And if you look at diet, you know people who are having sleep apnea, that's going to impact hormones. Increases ghrelin. They eat more food, put on more weight, increase sleep apnea, insomnia, mental health issues are very tied in with poor sleep, and breathing is tied in with both. And uh, yeah, like the whole sleep industry has really, really been neglected here. You know, if you think of the the only well, the main gold standard of treatment is a CPAP machine. And 50% of people abandon it after six weeks. It's hardly a success. What about the 50% of people who are not able to tolerate it? And there's a huge connection here with breathing. I wrote an article with two ear, nose and throat doctors. It was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine about two months ago. And it's a 10,000 word article exploring the phenotypes of sleep apnea. Basically, sleep disorder breathing has changed quite a bit in the last seven years. And breathing exercises tie in very nicely. So it's just starting to get that awareness out there. But it, it does come back to that, Dave. I think if you get sleep right, a lot of the other things can fall into place.
1: Uh, I believe you're you're right. And the connection with breathing and sleep is there. And as someone who always hated sleeping, <laughs> because I have other things I'd like to do, uh, I've gotten to the point where I'm really, really good at sleeping. So I get six, six and a half hours and I am fully rested and you know, all of my data sources say I'm fully rested, which is ridiculous because I think there was a lot of times in my life where I would have slept for longer, but I wouldn't have gotten very good sleep. and so it's that quality thing. Mouth taping has been uh, important and certainly the circadian stuff, you know my circadian lighting company, True dark, um, the glasses and not eating too close to dinner, all of those add up. Uh, but man, taping has has been the thing. Um, I've also talked about uh, the ujjayi breath, and I think I taught it in the sleep challenge, or at least it's one of the free giveaways from something, which is a, a way to rapidly fall asleep. This is something I learned in yoga. Um, can you talk about the ujjayi breath and what that does versus all the other ones that you're going to teach us here in a minute?
2: Yeah, I suppose like with ujjayi breath where there's a restriction, I don't teach it myself, uh, there's restriction of the throat. We have to ask the question, what's the volume or the tidal volume that's that's um, taking part there I think it's going to vary according to the instructor you could have one instructor who's taking quite fuller breaths and even though there's restriction of the throat and you can hear quite a quite an amount of noise from the sound of breathing but you might have another instructor who's taking very light breaths so the tidal volume is going to be different and if we think of if you want to you know influence the autonomic nervous system it's all in the exhalation If we have a fast and sharp exhalation, we activate a stress response. And if we have a slow and prolonged exhalation, we activate the body's relaxation response. So I'm not sure if I'd be doing fast, rapid breathing before going to sleep. I'd be doing the opposite. I'd be down-regulating with a very soft breath in through the nose and a really relaxed and slow breath out. Unless what's happening with the UGI breath is that the the, the respiratory rate is quicker, or it may not be but the tidal volume is, is smaller, is shorter, and as a result, minute ventilation is reduced, the person is breathing less air, and that's going to stimulate the vagus nerve, the increased carbon dioxide. So if you feel air hunger, if you feel the air hunger during it, it stimulates the vagus nerve, and by doing that then, it's going to bring the body into relaxation and mind. So,
1: so what that is, guys, if if you've not heard of this, a U-J, U-J-A-A-Y, it's, uh, you, you breathe in only through the nose really slowly, almost like you're about to snore, like, but you don't want to be going a little further if you restrict anymore, but it, you do it really slowly, right? So, so when that trickles in, and for most people, I know three or four of those kind of knocks you out. It makes you really tired. And that's likely the vagal nerve activation. But if you were to do really, <laughs> a good teacher should tell you not to do it quickly and you'd probably end up like blowing your nose on yourself, because it's only through the nose. So uh, that's one of the, the many different, and there's thousands of different breaths if you look at traditional Chinese medicine and all. I want to know, how did you pick which breaths to cover in your book? <laughs> because, I mean, you could have written 10 books this size to cover the world's knowledge of breathing. So what made the cut?
2: So, like, I have a nice suite of exercises. We can work with a, a three-year-old, four-year-old child to an 8 year old man and everybody in between. Um, you know, there's exercise to upregulate, downregulate. Like, really, it's it's fairly simple when it comes down to breathing, though. You know, you have to ask any breathing exercise, what's it doing? How is it affecting the biochemistry, which is focused on carbon dioxide? How is it affecting the biomechanics, which is focusing on primarily the diaphragm? And how is it affecting the psychophysiological or resonance frequency breathing in terms of the autonomic nervous system? And then we ask, is it a stressor exercise or is is it a relaxer? And you can pretty, pretty much put every breathing exercise into those little box. So we have exercise to upregulate, exercise to downregulate. But I think the key here is, Dave, it's not just about the breathing on the mat. It's about the breathing. The person when they leave the studio, everyday breathing patterns. You know, if we talk, if, if I have a student coming in and if I just work with a person's breathing, it's just working with their breathing while they're with me is only a very small percent of the time. I'm more concerned. How is that person breathing when they walk down the street, when they do physical exercise, when they get into stress, down regulate before sleep? How are they breathing in sleep? Um, and I think that's really important. And yoga has an enormous potential. By embracing breathing to the depth and the potential that it can do. Because I would have loved being a 15-year-old with poor concentration, with poor sleep. Going into a yoga studio and for the yoga instructor saying, number one, Patrick, I need your breathing through that nose day and night. I was a chronic mouth breather. Number two, if I show you how to breathe a little bit less here, we can improve your blood circulation and oxygen delivery. Now, that's new information for many people out there. Number three, I'm going to improve your biomechanics with the connection with posture and spinal stabilization and the emotions. Number four, I'm going to help bring you out of that sympathetic drive into a more balanced autonomic nervous system. And that could be done in yoga. You know, the potential here to transform transform lives. And we shouldn't just think of breathing as being... It's this one silo. And that's the way it is, because the issue with breathing is that we are, we are trained according to tradition. And I was trained originally according to the Buteco tradition. I cannot change the Buteco method. Of course, I will tweak it here and there as best I can with my own students. However, with the oxygen advantage, I set it up that it was not going to be constrained by any tradition. It was free to embrace all traditions. And it wasn't just for, you know, part of yoga, but it was for performance based because I wanted to get a technique out there that men would do and that men would embrace. And, you know, that's very important. I remember I was giving meditation and mindfulness, mindfulness and functional breathing patterns back in 2010 to 2013. Ireland was a mess with anxiety as a result of economic crash here. And I gave small classes to 3,000 people over a course of two or three years. 90 90 to even 95% of people who attended were females. And I remember thinking, where on earth are all the men? Because it was the men who were dying most by suicide, but yet they wouldn't embrace breathing. And they were stuck in their heads, drowning in thought. And that's part of the reason why we brought out the oxygen advantage. I wanted something that was for the common and the normal person and not just use breathing as a means of training the breath for performance, but training the mind. Because if we can train the mind, that's the filter through which all of life's perceptions are, we analyze. And it's very important to know how the mind works. And I'm going to say is mindfulness does not work for the very group of people who need it the most, because if you have a lousy sleep pattern and if you have dysfunctional breathing, you can do all of the mindfulness in the world. It was developed two and a half thousand years ago. Mindfulness is wonderful. And I have to say that because I've done it and I've done in the Vipassana courses. Absolutely wonderful. It's not sufficient.
1: Well said. If you don't have cells that can make electrons effectively, you don't have enough energy to do personal development work all the way. Um, so I... Um, that's why when people are doing the 40 years of Zen stuff, uh, or if you have metal poisoning or toxic mold or anything, doing the work that's supposed to work, it's too much work because you just can't bring it. And so you've got to fix the biology enough to start bringing it with the mindfulness, which then makes it easier to fix the biology. But a lot of people say, I'm just going to start with mindfulness, but I'm going to eat a Snickers bar first. And it it just doesn't work like that. Right, and, and if you look at mouth breathing as the, the lung equivalent of eating a Snickers bar, you don't get the same effect from your meditation or your yoga class or even your bike ride. And I, I because of, of you and James and just playing around with it, yeah, when I go for a bike ride, I, my mouth is closed as, as much of the time as possible. And my kids have learned it. And we've talked with them about masks. And so they've both learned, okay, breathe in through your nose when the school makes you wear a mask some of the time, but not the rest of the time in a way that makes no sense. Uh, and uh, they've noticed a difference from that as well. But l- let me ask you that before we get into teaching some of, these, uh, some of these things that work on those four pathways, the biochemical, the biomechanical, the cadence, uh, those sorts of things. Um, what is the effect of wearing a mask on your breathing? And I'm not looking to be pro or anti-mask, just what does it do in mm. those four things around biomechanics?
2: Oh, in terms of, well, it really depends on who's wearing the mask, because if you have a person with a little tendency towards anxiety or panic disorder or asthma or female going through the the latter stage of the monthly cycle, if you have air hunger and then you put on a mask and that's going to amplify the air hunger, how is the person going to react to the feeling of air hunger? They will naturally react to the feeling of suffocation by breathing fast and shallow. So it's going to mess up the biomechanics but it's going to put them into a fight or flight response. It's not enough to tell people to wear a mask. It, isn't that a good thing though?
1: Because if, if we can put more people into a fight or flight response, then they're more obedient. <laughs> well, <laughs> defense. Oh, sorry. sorry. Depends I was wearing where, my government hat. I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm not but, an elected official. I take that.
2: <laughs> but you know what? There's like, people are saying that the masks are reducing oxygen saturation. Okay. Let's break that a little bit down because that's not technically correct. The yeah, us talk about pool, that. The mass pool carbon dioxide. So when you bre- rebreathe that carbon dioxide rich air back into the lungs, you increase CO2 in the blood. And this causes a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, meaning that hemoglobin, which is the carrier of oxygen in the blood, releases oxygen more readily. So when hemoglobin starts releasing oxygen more readily, you will see that the blood oxygen saturation will drop. So the SPO2 while wearing the mask is going to drop a couple of percentage points but not necessarily because oxygen can't get in it's because hemoglobin is releasing oxygen more readily so i think because you breathe
1: important. more CO2 Exactly Okay most people who talk about uh, the the health effects of masks do not understand what you just said but breathe more CO2 that actually for brief periods can be good for you because it releases more oxygen into the tissue. But if the oxygen is released from the red blood cells, you have less oxygen in the red blood cells. But if you do that for long periods of time, what's the physiological effect of that?
2: In terms of, again, you know, if, if, if you're bringing in more CO2 over a period of time, your breathing is not normally going to react. It's different for me because I can cope with the air hunger and I understand the air hunger. But for a normal, say a teenager, And you have the teenager wear a mask for six or eight hours. I don't think it's good. Um, I think it's going to be really detrimental to that kid in terms of how the child is reacting with their breathing patterns. We should be teaching the child, the teenager, the person with anxiety or panic disorder, if you're wearing the mask, understand not to hyperventilate in response to the feeling of air hunger. It's the hyperventilating hyperventilation that is not good and you know it's like any stress if you're if you're exposed to a prolonged stressor for six or eight hours a day several days a week what we have to ask the question what's going to happen the long-term breathing pattern of that individual
1: well, all sorts of things go down. If you're exposed to chronic stressors all the time, your fertility goes down, your hormone production goes down, your health goes down, all sorts of bad things. So brief periods of, of stress seem to work. Chronic stress doesn't, and we know that. You, uh, in your book, you talk about reducing the rate of breathing to between 4.5 and 6.5 times a minute, right, or a number of breaths per minute, Um how do I know if 4.5 or 6.5 is right for me and how does it apply to teenagers or perimenopausal women? I mean, there's all these different groups yes, and that's yeah. a relatively
2: large range. So How do you we don't. know how much to breathe? You, you don't. Um, but I'm not saying that the respiratory rate all day, every day should be that. What I'm saying is okay. take 10 minutes twice a day or 20 minutes twice daily and pay attention to your breathing. And you could you could choose a good average of six breaths per minute breathing in for five seconds and breathing out for five seconds. And this helps to strengthen the baroreflex, which is a very important function within the autonomic nervous system. It's the sensitivity of your your baroreceptors to changes in blood pressure. I'll keep it simple. Our major blood vessels have pressure receptors. So you're talking about the aorta and you're talking about the carotid artery. And the pressure receptors are continuously monitoring our blood pressure. When blood pressure increases the baroreceptors respond by sending immediate signals to the blood vessels to dilate and the heart rate to come down. And conversely, if blood pressure drops, the baroreceptors send immediate signals for the blood vessels to constrict and the heart rate to increase. And it's the sensitivity of our bar reflex, which is so important as an indicator of the functioning of the autonomic nervous system. It's the sensitivity of the bar reflex, which is influencing the vagus nerve and vagal tone then is evident by heart rate variability. So the research over the last 30 years coming from say Paul, I never pronounce his name right, Lehrer, um, and others that you're slowing down the respiratory rate, that you can help to strengthen the bar reflex. And when you look at people with chronic conditions, people with either emotional issues or they're physically unwell, they typically have reduced heart rate variability. And now that people are wearing wearable devices, which is very good, it's giving them feedback of their HRV. But the real question to ask here is, how can you optimize your HRV? And that's when no nose breathing during sleep, breathing light, even though when you breathe light and you feel our hunger, your HRV can dip, but after the exercise, your HRV will increase. Breathing slow and breathing low. And that's why I brought together the acronym LSD, you know, light, slow, and deep breathing. And here again, David, or Dave, people focus on one dimension. If you go down to your your local studio, the focus may be on the biomechanics, but not necessarily looking at the biochemistry or resonance frequency breathing. If you go to your heart rate variability instructor, they're focusing on resonance frequency breathing, but they're not looking at the biomechanics or the biochemistry. And again, we have to look at the breadth, and I'm not here to complicate it, I was teaching the biochemistry for 15 years. And then I realized, oh my God, I'm stuck in this tunnel vision. I really have to start broadening here because the breadth is deeper than just one dimension.
1: All right. Uh, when you talk about breathing light, yes. can you demonstrate that? What is breathing light? What does that look like? Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body, and those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change yourselves, and you change your life. For more information, visit arrcled.com.
2: Yeah, breathing light is you could have an individual and they're sitting down and take attention out of the mind and onto the breath and focus on the slightly colder air coming in and out of the nostrils and really slow down the speed of the air coming into the nose and then allow really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. The whole objective is can you slow down your breathing that the breath in is almost imperceptible? Can you slow down your breathing that you feel hardly any air coming into your nose? Your breath is silent, you hardly feel any air coming into your nose, and at the top of the breath, you allow a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. And again, you come back to the inhalation and you really soften the speed of the air coming into your nose almost that you are hardly breathing at all. And at the top of the breath again, a really relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation. So it's just by focusing on the area just inside the nostrils and deliberately slowing down the speed of the breath. And by doing that, by having a really soft breath in and a relaxed and a slow and gentle exhalation, the objective is to breathe less air, to take about 30% less air into your body. And you know, so I'm watching all the, all the Upgrade Collective
1: members um,
2: pass out and fall over. <laughs> that's not going to happen. <laughs> it's you, not going to happen. Well, let's explain what is happening. You know, this carbon dioxide is not just this bad guy that's out there. It's not just this waste gas that you read in every newspaper and magazine and everything else. Let's look at the functions of carbon dioxide. You know, I'll tell you that I had cold hands and feet for decades, and it is so common that people with dysfunctional breathing have cold hands and feet. And I've used this with thousands of people. Gently slow down the speed of your breathing for short pockets, not by holding the breath or tensing the body, just by softening the speed of the airflow coming in and out of the nose and allow carbon dioxide to increase a little in the blood. You feel air hunger and the body is very sensitive to that increased CO2. The feeling of air hunger is not because your oxygen has dropped. Your oxygen has to drop by 50% before that stimulates your breathing. So when you breathe a little bit less air and you feel air hunger, it signifies that carbon dioxide is increased in the blood. What is happening when you expose your body to an increased CO2? You stimulate the vagus nerve. You know you're stimulating the vagus nerve because you'll have increased watery saliva in the mouth. You'll also go drowsy. That's why we use this as a down regulator before sleep but it influences your blood circulation, 70,000 miles of blood vessels in the human body. We can help to dilate them. It influences oxygen delivery. It helps with the airways. So it's, you know, and what I really want to do is improving functional breathing patterns. And this of course can be assessed by using a simple tool called the Bolt score, your breath hold time. And the Bolt score, I know it may be shocking for many people when they're, they're, they're measuring their own, but don't worry about what you get, but you know, for people to give it a go, you take a normal breath in and out through your nose and you pinch your nose with your fingers and you time it. How long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe or the first involuntary movement of your breathing muscles? So it's not the maximum length of a breath total. It's a physiological reaction to breathe. Now, Professor Kyle Kiesel from Evansville University did a study of 51 individuals in 2018. And his conclusion was that if your breath toll time is above 25 seconds, there is an 89% chance that dysfunctional breathing is not present. Now, I have met eight 9,000 people working with them with breathing. And I would say that the vast majority of them were less than 25 seconds. You know, typically when we have an athlete coming in, there are about 20 seconds. And our goal is to get them up to 40 seconds. And then you'll have people with anxiety and panic disorder. Their breath toll time could be down to 10 seconds. Let's just even look at this population. 75 to 80% of the population with anxiety and panic disorder have dysfunctional breathing. 75% of them. Wow. They're in that, that fight or flight and it's not—it's not, it's not okay. that they're having a panic attack. It's just meaning that their breathing is a little bit faster. It's upper chest breathing. They may have irregular breathing. They have their mouth open maybe at night, and this is feeding into their anxiety, and that's let's, being overlooked.
1: Let's do this uh, then. So, in order to to measure that, you just you take a normal breath in. Yes. Um, And then a normal breath out. So upgrade collective. We've got uh, around 40 or so people um, dialed in in our audience. So if you guys are not driving or something, why don't you try doing this? And just in the chat window, type your numbers. We're going to see how how good we are here. Yes, but your group
2: might be, I'm I'm assuming that you've got quite a number of high achievers in your group.
1: Yeah, they're all 80 Um, second uh, breath empty hold times (laughs) uh, on average. I'm kidding. Uh, so, but but so, and, and when you're listening to this episode, uh, when it's published, um, anyone can do this. So all you're, you're doing is a normal, like a five second in kind of breath, and you breathe out. Yeah, not just, just kind of walk us through
2: it. It's just normal. It's normal so you like- don't change your everyday breathing pattern. You're just having a normal inhalation, okay, and a normal exhalation, and then you hold your nose, or it's better if you hold your nose. And then you're simply timing it in seconds. How long does it take until you feel the first definite desire to breathe or the first involuntary movement of your breathing muscles?
1: Do you breathe out like all the way, like empty no, the lungs as much no. as you can, just a natural exhale? So there's some oxygen in there. Oh, and then yeah. 25 seconds doesn't sound that crazy. Okay.
2: Yeah, it's to, to functional residual capacity. But you'll be surprised, you know, and, you know, even with especially different subgroups. Like I would think in the normal population, about 20% of the normal population have dysfunctional breathing. But in people with lower back pain, it's 50%. People with anxiety, it's 75%. People with asthma, it's about 30%. So in different pockets, it affects. And then females with PMS, you know, changes in hormones, it's going to influence breathing patterns. And the main thing is just to relax into it. So you keep holding your breath until you feel the first definite desire to breathe. And you may feel the involuntary contractions of the diaphragm, or it may be like a swallow in the throat. So sometimes it feels like a swallow because your diaphragm breathing muscle is connected with the upper air with the later muscles. And then when you let go, Dave, the breath at the end should be fairly normal.
1: So I got 37 seconds there.
2: But that's pretty good.
1: I could feel my heart, my heart was beating faster, but I didn't have a strong desire to breathe.
2: Yeah, and your breathing there seemed, even though it might have come in through the mouth, it seemed quite normal at the end of it.
1: It was, because my nose was still like opening uh, from being pinched. But part of this, too, is I'm playing with some of the new tech that's coming out at Upgrade Labs. (laughs) So when I release that, you guys will be excited uh, to hear about what I'm doing there. I think that works. So one of our guys, uh, Ski, hit fifty-one. 18, 32, 33, 27, 16. Um, I'm Hetty, um, who's in her 70s, 14 second first impulse, didn't want to breathe till 31. Nice, Hetty. Uh, 45 seconds. So we have some pretty good distribution, much higher than average people who are above yes. 25 seconds. So, and yes. then, uh, someone here at 47. Um, wow, that's amazing. So, um, I would say if you're listening to this, you can do this test for yourself. You just need a little stopwatch and just see, are you above 25 seconds? And if you have anxiety, which so many people have, you might not even know you have anxiety. That was pretty much me <laughs> until I was 30. Like, There's no reason to be anxious. Therefore, I'm not anxious. I just want to punch you. Okay, that's different. Uh, is that like all of Ireland? Is that what I'm saying?
2: All of Ireland. <laughs> back, I back when you started
1: doing your, not, your work, I'm talking about, you were describing all this stressed out, man. Yeah,
2: it's, well, it's, uh, oh, especially back then. But, you know, it's, I think a lot of men, I oftentimes we're very disconnected with it from our body. And, you know, I think it's normal that people don't realize when they're stressed. But sometimes stress yeah. just catches up on us. And we don't quite feel it until we're away from it. We have something to compare it to. Um the breath hold time though is a fairly helpful measure in terms of stress as well. Now, okay. it doesn't always work a hundred percent. It's only an indicator. If I'm working with somebody, I look at their breath hold time, but I also monitor, monitor their breathing pattern. But typically when you have a person with a lower breath hold time, they normally have faster breathing rate and a more upper chest breathing. And if they have a low breath hold time of say 10 seconds, they'll often complain that they feel air hunger and they have irregular breathing. An irregular breathing pattern then is feeding into that anxiety. So it is. It's certain pockets of the population. Okay.
1: I'm still a little bit confused. You talk about breathing light. We, we breathe where you can barely you know, feel or, or sense the air coming in and out. Okay, if that's one of the three things. You all talk about breathing deep. But if I'm yes. breathing light, don't I also breathe deep because I'm breathing really slowly so I want to fill my lungs all the way? Or are those separate techniques?
2: There, no, you can do them together. Yeah, okay. it's, uh, I, you know, I think it's a good question because I think a lot of people, what they, they suspected, if you were to breathe with lateral expansion and contraction of the lower ribs, that you have to take this full big breath. No, no, not at all. Like even if you were to just sit there and put one hand on your chest, sorry, one hand either side of your lower ribs. So on the sides is better. And you're looking just just where basically the base of the ribs Now, as you breathe in, your ribs should gently move out. And as you breathe out, your ribs should gently move in. And the reason that we have the hands either side of the lower ribs is because it's a good gauge of the generation of intra-abdominal pressure because it takes pressure to push the ribs outwards. Now, you could even really slow down the speed of the breath that you're taking a very soft, gentle breath in through your nose and a relaxed and slow, gentle breath out and have optimal movement of the diaphragm. You don't have to take a big breath to breathe breathe low. And I think that's a okay. mistake that people make. And, you know, the diaphragm breathing muscle, again, what does it do? It's massaging the internal organs. It's helpful for lymphatic drainage. The heart is just sitting on top of the diaphragm. So every movement of the diaphragm, it's improving return to the blood flow to the heart. It's connected with the emotions. But I think really important aspect of the diaphragm is It's providing stability for the spine. And functional breathing and functional movement go together. You can definitely feel the spinal uh, uh, alignment when
1: you do that. And there's lymphatic drainage that happens when you're filling the lungs up like that. And I'm thinking about the art of living breathing techniques. I did this every morning for five years um, for, for, geez, must have been in my late 20s, early 30s when when I did all this. But it's kind of funny because the way you do that is you do a set of them with your hands down here and you do a set with your hands up here and a set with your hands behind your your back, which was to force air into all three lobes of the lung. And you do it in each of those things with slow, medium, and fast. So it was sort of like a little 15-minute in the morning exercise the lungs. And it really did neurologically do weird stuff that was beneficial, I would say. And it, it sounds like there was some aspects of this because we've got breathing light uh, from, uh, from your breathing cure book, you know, breathing light, then breathing deep, and then you got breathing slow. And so what you showed us earlier with a breathing light, we were almost by definition because it's light, it's going to have to be slow. Otherwise, it's not going to be light. And it didn't have to be deep, but it probably would be deep if it was really slow. You'd want to fill your lungs all the way. So then you get your LSD light, slow and deep you have another chapter in the book that I think is worth talking about uh, and it reminds me of uh, of a chapter in fast this way right you know fasting for women there are some studies that say it's different and your chapter 12 is yes breathing is different for women and it's like we keep figuring out that women are not just little men um, or the converse of that that uh, men are not just large women uh, so <laughs> What is different for breathing with women? How does breathing shift over the the course of a typical month? Does it change uh, at perimenopause? Does it change at menopause? Walk me through all of that.
2: Like anatomical, uh, female breathing is different in terms of the size of the airways. And even females doing intense physical exercise, airflow is more turbulent. So they have to work harder to to get adequate air in. But I think the biggest, the biggest change is, is hormonal um, during the, the monthly cycle. And none of this is new. This was first documented back in 1905. And we're talking about days, 20, days 10 to days 22 of the monthly cycle, mid-luteal to mid-follicular phase. There's an increase in progesterone and there's an increase in estrogen. And progesterone is a respiratory stimulant. So breathing will typically become faster and harder. And what I mean by harder is that the the size of the breath becomes larger. This can cause carbon dioxide levels to fall by as much as 25%. Now, when carbon dioxide levels fall by as much as 25%, it can increase pain and it can lower pain thresholds. It's putting the female into more sympathetic activation, increased panic, increased anxiety, fatigue, and air hunger. But it's not going to affect all females the same but it's especially going to affect females with already poorer breathing patterns. So say for example, during the early stage of the monthly cycle, if you have a female with a bolt score of 15 seconds, and then she goes through mid luteal to mid follicular and her bolt score is dropping and she has symptoms of PMS and she's not necessarily accrediting the symptoms of PMS to changes in her breathing patterns as a result of changes in hormone. And It affects epilepsy, um, depression, asthma, fibromyalgia. There's females that will meet the diagnostic criteria for fibromyalgia during the latter stages of the monthly cycle and don't meet them in the early stages. So I think it's very, very important for females to track their breathing patterns across the monthly cycle. And also, is there a time for a female to be exercising hard and a time then just to back off a little bit. And, you know, that's also something that we should be taking into consideration. Um, so the other aspect then with females is post-menopause, that as a result of sleep disorder breathing. So proge- progesterone for the younger females seems to protect the airway from collapse. So when we're talking about obstructive sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea is when the upper airway collapses during sleep and if it collapses totally that we stop breathing for more than 10 seconds, that's an apnea. So the younger females are protected in some way, maybe due to progesterone, that it's causing a stiffening of the throat, that this throat is less likely to collapse. But post-menopause, when hormones level level out, the increase of sleep disorder breathing um, is quite significant and it can be as much as 300%. And we've seen it with anecdotal evidence that females who are mouth breathing can have increased nocturnal sweating and increased hot flashes, et cetera. And by getting them breathing through the nose, that it can help alleviate that. And it wow. may be because of the impact on this, the, the autonomic nervous system. You know, again, it comes back to when I hear people talking about sleep and they're talking about sleep hygiene. And, you know, all of that is, of course, very good. Don't eat late at night. Don't drink alcohol. Have a cool bedroom, an airy bedroom, you know, thermal regulation, blue light filter glasses, all great stuff. The elephant in the room is breathing in and out through the nose. And it's also associated with light, slow breathing, because if we're breathing light, like uh, I'll give you this example. It's going to apply to both females and men. To make the sound of a snore through the mouth, it goes like this. And now, if you close your mouth and try and snore through your mouth, you can't. To make the sound of a snore through the nose, and it goes like this. But if you breathe slow through your nose, and you take a very soft, slow breath in through your nose and a relaxed, slow breath out, and while you breathe slowly, try to snore, and you'll find it's more difficult. So the whole thing about sleep medicine is that the focus has been on the anatomy on the airway, but no engineer is going to look at a pipe without considering flow. Sleep medicine has ignored the breathing component in sleep disorder breathing. They have ignored how is the person breathing outside of their sleep because it's the person, it's their breathing during the day that influences their breathing during sleep. And if we can improve their breathing patterns during the day, we can improve their breathing patterns during sleep. So, ideally, the mouth is closed, the tongue is resting in the roof of the mouth, breathing is in and out through the nose. It's light, it's slow, but it's driven by the diaphragm because the diaphragm breathing muscle is connected with the upper air with the later muscles. Now, think of your normal individual with sleep disorder breathing. They're lying in bed, mouth open. They're breathing fast and they're breathing upper chest. The tongue is more likely to fall into the throat. Their mouth is dry. Their throat is dry. Their throat is narrowing because of the inflammation as a result of the trauma, but also because of the upper chest breathing. It reduces lung volume and the throat is more liable to collapse. And when we think that 20% of road traffic accidents is related to driver fatigue, but there is something really sinister going on for children When we think of sleep disorder breathing, affecting two to five percent of the childhood population are prone to sleep apnea, and about 10 to 15 percent are prone to sleep disorder breathing. There was a study that was published in Pediatrics in in 2012, and I think she's an American researcher called Karen Bonnock, B-O-N-U-C-K, and she looked at 11,000 children in Stratford-upon-Avon in the United Kingdom. Children with sleep disorder, breathing, which includes snoring, if it was untreated by age five, these kids had a 40% increased risk of special education needs by age eight. Now, if my stats are right, there are 3 million kids in America with cognitive difficulties. And the problem is that if these kids are growing up and if they have poor sleep quality, it's causing brain damage. And that's not an exaggeration. This has been overlooked, Dave. Nobody seems to be talking about it. It's no good that these these articles and papers are stuck in the journals. They need to be brought out into the public domain. How many children go into their doctor today with their mouth open? And will the doctor ask, is the child breathing through the nose during sleep? Is the child snoring? Is the child stopping breathing? And is the child, you know, it's only when it's very obvious Is it being addressed? And all of those kids are falling between the stools.
1: Yep. It's one of the reasons that toxic mold is such a a big thing for me. I, I grew up in a basement with Aspergillus and probably Stachybotrys based on all the symptoms, and I've had it other times in life, you cannot be a nose breather if you're sleeping in a room with toxic mold. And there's a 100 million structures that have this. So all of a sudden, it's an environmental input that then causes swelling in the sinuses. So then you have to be a mouth breather, which then causes damage on top of the damage that's caused by neurotoxins that you're breathing Anyway, and is it any wonder that a kid like that can't pay attention in school yes. or has emotional regulation problems or asthma or punches people a lot, which would kind of describe all of my <laughs> middle school and below time. Uh, and you, you look at it and you look at this the extent and the scope of the problem. Um, of breathing, and then you look at all the environmental things, or the kids who have milk, which makes a lot of slime in your nose for a lot of people, so then you can't be a nose breather, although if you tape your mouth, you'll eventually get past the slime, but how many you know, eight-year-olds are going to do that? Very mm-hmm. few. So th- this is a major thing, and there's tons of doctors who've listened to the show. So if you see that kid coming in with their mouth open and crooked yes. teeth, maybe it's time to talk about that. What would you tell doctors? Okay, let's say that they just heard about this and they're going, "Oh my god, I thought ketosis was radical." Mouth taping, you know, they're going to take my license for sure. Okay, maybe they're not thinking that, but how would a doctor tell a patient to take action about this?
2: Well, I think the first thing is just common sense. What does the mouth do in terms of breathing? Yeah, you, okay,
1: so I'm, I'm going to tell them on this. Like your your kid is a mouth breather, right? Well, <laughs> so, what I would say,
2: well, if a child come in to me, I say, you know. What we're going to do is we're going to work towards restoring nasal breathing. And I would explain okay. it to the mom that if the child is mouth breathing, they'll typically breathe a little bit faster from upper chest. It can impact their sleep. Children with sleep disorder breathing have 10 times the risk of learning difficulties. It can in- impact their craniofacial development. Of course, I don't want to scare the life out of the mom, but I would really encourage the mom to embrace nasal breathing. Now, normally when we're working with kids and parents coming in, we spend as much time working with the parent because oftentimes the parent is chronic obstruction of the nose. So we show the parent how to decongest their nose. We show the parent how to slow down their breathing to influence their autonomic nervous system. So by working with the parent, the parent then is the one that's working with the child. But coming, yeah, coming back to it, What does the mouth do in terms of breathing? And I was at a conference in Chicago back about five years ago and a professor of medicine stood up and said there was no difference between breathing through the mouth and breathing through the nose. And I don't know, I couldn't believe, I couldn't really couldn't believe it. The mouth does zero. It has zero functions, no function whatsoever. It doesn't moisten the incoming air. It doesn't regulate volume. You hardly, you harness nasal nitric oxide in very, very minute quantities. Mouth breathing is activating the upper chest. It's a faster breathing. The nose imposes a resistance to your breathing that's two to three times that of the, the, the mouth during the day. It's your mouth that imposes a resistance to your breathing that's two and a half times that of the nose during sleep. So even when people exercise with their mouth open, why? Your mouth is doing zero, zilch, nothing. And uh, one professor of sports medicine, George Dallum, from I think it's Colorado State University, D L D A L L A M. He has been invest- interested with nasal breathing in athletes for the last five years, and he he did a small study of ten recreational athletes, and he got them to breathe exclusively through their nose during all physical exercise for six months. Then he tested them, and. They had 100% of their work rate intensity nasal breathing versus mouth breathing, but the respiratory rate with nasal breathing was 39 breaths per minute. With mouth breathing, it was 49. The fraction of expired oxygen was less with nasal breathing. In other words, their body was utilizing oxygen better.
1: That's the primary measure of mitochondrial function is how well you use the oxygen you take in. So their mitochondria worked better because they were nose breathing
2: flat out. And, And that's interesting. And they had 22% less ventilation. So even though they achieved 100% of their work rate intensity, they did it it with 22% less ventilation. Now, I can understand why somebody goes to the gym. And especially when the, the exercise, you know, moderate to high intensity, the air hunger is getting quite challenging. But at the same time, I would encourage them, do your best to sustain nasal breathing. Because your recovery is better. You're also more likely to enter flow states footballer on a field has improved visual spatial awareness with nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. We have to think of the connection of the nose and the brain. And there's a very interesting study. I didn't write about but I kind of touched on in the book. There was a study that was conducted in the United Kingdom, looking at women who were on the pill and they met their partner. And then six months later, they come off their pill and the change in hormones and in selecting their mate, they had a different out, outlook to their mate when they come off the pill versus when they were on the pill. And it was reflective of olfactory, the nose. We select our mate based on nasal breathing. So there's some stuff here, you know, this sniffing out danger is a term that we often hear. Like, what is it? You know, sniffing out danger. The nose is performing more functions than we give it credit for. And one wow. doctor back in the 70s said it performed, seven, it performed 30 functions, Dr. Morris Cottle. But I kind of seen, I remember I was at a, a conference in Italy, in Rome in 2016, and many medical doctors and dentists, orthodontists, were at that conference. And one medical doctor from Italy showed a video of a patient walking down the corridor of the hospital, and it showed the gait that the patient had a poor gait they weren't walking very stable and the doctor stopped the patient got the patient to put the tongue into his roof of into the roof of his mouth breathe through his nose kept the camera rolling and immediately with good tongue resting posture and nasal breathing the gait of the patient improved so you know i think that the tongue and breathing through the nose is is doing it's serving more functions than we actually probably realize.
1: It's a fruitful area for biohacking. Um, one of my ultimate fantasies has been to use a tongue printer. A lot of people haven't heard of this. Your tongue has so many nerves on it. So you can have uh, uh, blind people can actually see with their tongue. They have a like a dot matrix printer that will push a little dots on their tongue so they can actually see around them, and it wires into the brain really well. So I've always wanted to hook, hook other biofeedback systems like the neurofeedback. I do it 40 years Then, up to my tongue because your tongue is such an amazing thing for proprioception, a sense of where your whole body is in space. And if your tongue is well-informed because it's relaxed, it's going to change how your head sets. And there's probably some proprioceptors in the nose that I don't know about, but it's weird because if you're, say, doing normal things and suddenly you bite your tongue, it's usually because you got exposed to a neurotoxin, your oxygen levels were low, your brain isn't working right because you lost track, your automated systems lost track of where you were in space. So when you realize, wait, why did I bite myself? Something caused that. But we don't think about any of this, but it's a major important system. It's just a sub-level system that's, you know, why would anyone care about it? your tongue? <laughs> but Ooh. I think it's kind of important and interesting. I love it that you brought that up. And I want to ask you about your fifth appendix in the book, which is one that I was impressed you wrote. And it was nasal breathing versus coronavirus. Tell me what you think about that.
2: Yeah, it's. it's I was surprised that there has been absolutely no mention of the importance of nose breathing. And when we think of the gas nitric oxide first discovered on the exhaler breath in the human being in 1991, it's antiviral, it's antibacterial, it redistributes the blood, helps to redistribute the blood throughout the lungs, it increases the pressure of oxygen in the blood by 10%. And could nasal nitric oxide mitigate the effects of COVID-19? And that's only a theory I put out there. I can't say for sure, of course I can't, but yet we have to ask the question that the nose is the first line of defence in terms of airborne viruses coming into the human body. And there has been absolutely no mention of breathing through the nose, none whatsoever. Now, even in terms of people who are unfortunate enough to get coronavirus, their blood oxygen saturation is dropping. There is a way to breathe to improve your SpO2. And that's not by breathing fast and shallow, but it's by breathing nose slow and low. Because Every breath that we take, the last 150 ml of air doesn't reach the small air sacs in the lungs. It stays in dead space. And if you have an individual who is breathing rapid, fast breathing and shallow breathing, they are leaving so much more air in dead space and less air is reaching the small air sacs in the lungs for gas exchange to take place. So there was a paper then after I wrote that article, I or maybe at the same time, there's an article written in Elsevier microbes and infection is the name of the journal and the researchers talked about the importance of nasal breathing during sleep and their anecdotal observations that by taping the mouth during sleep it may help to reduce viral load and to give the immune system an adequate time to mount an effective response because they said a lot of the challenges with respiration happen early in the morning and if the individual is there with their mouth open they're bypassing the nose and they're not harnessing nasal nitric oxide. So here is a gas that we produce naturally as human beings inside the nose, and we harness it when we breathe in and out through the nose. If we hum, we can increase it 15 fold. Humming just by vibrating the nasal sinuses, it's helping the, the nitric oxide to come out of the paranasal sinuses into the nasal cavity. Breath holding also increases it. Now, there's clinical trials looking at nitric oxide for the treatment of COVID, and one one product that was clinically trialed here in in the United Kingdom, and it showed it. They tested with I think it was 77 people with COVID, and they showed that simply inhaling nitric oxide it reduced symptom duration, and it helped the people recover quicker from from the disease of COVID. Now we have to bear in mind that nitric oxide is completely safe. No side effects. It is administered to babies with respiratory distress. The human nose naturally produces it. And even if, to encourage people, breathe through your nose, but also, um, you know, if you wanted to, to take nitric oxide in externally, why not? It should be also op- offered to people.
1: Do, do you mean like whippets? Whippets. Oh, the, the little the little nitrous, uh, I guess it's nitrous, not nitric oxide uh, things that you can use to make um, whipped cream, but that people like um, to inhale at Burning Man. Is that what we're talking about? No, it's,
2: I'm not familiar with the product. No, the well, <laughs> I w- the product is called sanotize. It's I've nothing got to do with it, but I just thought it was interesting. Here is a product. It's an inhaler with nitric oxide, and it's been shown got to it. be effective in the treatment of COVID. And like. Yeah, no mention whatsoever. And I contacted the the medical doctor that's very much in the forefront in Ireland. And I sent him on the information and I asked him, could you please just start looking into the impact, the possible potential of nasal breathing here? And no, wow. it didn't happen.
1: Well, it's... When you find something that has broad spectrum improvement in all physiological functions, things like cyclical ketosis, things like not eating toxins, like breathing right, you go lower and lower and lower foundationally, everything above that improves. So it's no wonder that immunity would get better. And if you just gave everyone an excuse to go use laughing gas, um, that's not a bad thing either.
2: Yeah, no, it's the nitric oxide though is a little bit different though to I know, nitrous is probably uh, <laughs> nitrous yeah. versus yeah, nitric yeah, exactly. unfortunately yeah.
1: but nitrous oxide will also raise your nitric oxide levels at least if you have the right enzymes running in your system which you should uh, unless you have the nox 1 2 and 3 genes uh, that are those that are messed up in which case maybe not uh, Patrick, uh, your new Breathing Cure book is going to be a, a Bible of breathing. I think everyone who listens to this show and has for years, we're always looking for things that make us perform better and things that are, are broad spectrum. And there's some books that you really ought to have on your shelf. And when it comes to breathing, there are two really important foundational books out there. And the Breathing Cure book that you just came out with, is it's an encyclopedia. It's got all the stuff that you'd want to know about it. That's one of them. The other one is James Nestor's, and James has also been on the show. Um, he's a friend as well. And if you have those two books together on your shelf, you're going to just sit there and go, wow, um, I get why and I get how. And there's some why in both books. They're both worth your time to read. And I will just tell you, if you've read my book, The Bulletproof Diet, or any of my other nutritional books, air is as important as food. And I haven't written a breathing-only book, not planning on it, because there's a couple fantastic books out here, and yours is one of them. And you're the guy who first turned me on to how important this was about 400 episodes ago. So my personal thanks to you for that. I would like to go from here and bring some questions on from the Upgrade Collective, because the whole audience here has been uh, just raring to ask questions throughout our whole interview. And I'm going to put those questions on my YouTube channel. So if you guys want to catch the questions, check them out on YouTube. And from there, just thanks again for your work in the world and pushing on this for 20 years. I think the time of breathing has come.
2: Mm, it has. One one person said to me about two years ago, he says, it took you 20 years to be an overnight success. Um, I'm delighted to see that it's finally getting some recognition. And I have to say to James Nestor, he has done monumental work and he has achieved more with his book than we have achieved in 20 years and it's raised all boats. It's been really tremendous to see his book get out there because it has put it into the imagination of people.
1: Well, I mean, he mentions you in his book as well, in The Boteco Clinic. Mm-hmm. And uh, what it comes down to here is there are always a few crazy people working on groundbreaking stuff until one day they're not crazy anymore. And what they're saying is obvious. <laughs> And I've been one of those before, and it's always 10, 20 years of kind of banging against things. So thanks for doing it, because it takes a certain kind of longevity and uh, endurance, but it's probably one that's easier when you're taping your mouth at night. So at least you had that advantage. Yeah,
2: well, it was like this. (laughs) When I was working with people all those years and still work with people, nobody could say to me it didn't work. I seen it firsthand with myself. And I've seen that it could be reproduced with other people. And I'm not saying anything is 100%. It's never 100%. It depends on compliance. But here we're talking about basic physiology that can influence all of the major disciplines of medicine. Dental health. Everything. um, Mental health. Sleep. Respiration. And these are significant. And, you know, I think there is a role for breathing and in time breathing will be embraced in medicine i really think it's going to happen it may not be driven by the profession but it will be driven by doctors individually yeah Um, and then it'll happen happen. yes i think
1: so all the good stuff starts with doctors and they have to fight their medical boards and all to get the medical boards to stop being stuck in the 1970s And it turns out mouth taping works when you're dealing with someone like, I don't know, a Monsanto executive or someone who won't allow you to practice medicine the way you're supposed to. What you do is mouth taping combined with nasal taping at the same time. And if you just hold them down for a little while until they can you know, make the world a better place, that seems to work really well. So anyone who tries to stop your doctor from doing whatever you and your doctor want, they're your enemy. Doesn't mean you should tape their nose and mouth at the same time. You should ask someone else to do it. (laughs) <laughs> Patrick let's get some questions from the audience <laughs> Susan you want to go
3: um, Thank you so much for this conversation Patrick and I'm really looking forward to your new book I had two questions uh, one is around tongue position and the other is about altitude so the question around tongue position is that you you you've mentioned several times linking tongue position to breathing and I, I've been trained in various breathing techniques, yoga uh techniques, and so on. What tongue positions do you link to breathing day-to-day, as well as your breathing exercises that you found beneficial?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I suppose we haven't gone into the detail of the tongue that you might have, Susan. Um our, there's another discipline, myofunctional therapy, that's it's it, they they really explore it. But we want to have the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth, and it's three quarters of the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth, and the tip of the tongue shouldn't be touching the top front teeth. It should be just placed slightly behind the top front teeth, and what's called the rugae. Now, normally when I'm working with students, I'll ask them to make the popping sound. Because to make that sound, you have to elevate the tongue into the roof of the mouth, and that's where the tongue should be. And I always say to students as well, ideally we wake up with the tongue resting in the roof of the mat in the morning because the tongue has got two places to be. It's either in the roof of the mouth or it's encroaching the airway. And if it's encroaching the airway, it's causing restriction to breathing and that can increase the risk of sleep disorder breathing.
3: Day in, day out, the tongue sort of resting in that position where it's not at the roof of the mouth and it's not completely flat. At the base of the mouth, but the cluck doing that clucking sound and then letting it rest there. Okay, thank you. And then on altitude, um, as one who lives at 7,500 feet above sea level, I'm wondering how altitude affects your recommendations for breathing day to day, breathing exercises to help improve living. Sleeping and training at altitude
2: Yeah, in simple terms, it it comes down to improving alveolar ventilation, and we can achieve this by breathing slow and low. I give you a, there was a study that was conducted, I can't remember the researchers, but they looked at thirty nine individuals who were at a height of five thousand four hundred meters, and their blood oxygen saturation had dropped down to eighty percent, which is severe hypoxia. They got the individuals to slow down their breathing to six breaths per minute without increasing minute ventilation. So in other words, while they reduced the respiratory rate down to six breaths per minute, the tidal volume increased proportionately, so minute ventilation remained the same. And they increased their alveo- they increased their blood oxygen saturation from 80% to 89-something percent. In other words, from severe hypoxia to mild hypoxia. It would be very interesting to measure your blood oxygen saturation at 7,500 feet I'm assuming you're well climatized. probably your blood oxygen saturation is going to be normal. But if you had an individual who just arrives and their blood oxygen saturation is down to 93%, and I remember after reading information from Barnardi, he's an Italian cardiologist, who's very interested in yoga and breathing, and he spoke about his patients with chronic heart failure, that they had exercise intolerance, but also their blood oxygen saturation would drop. And then a student came in to me and she had chronic heart failure, and her blood oxygen saturation was dropping down to 92% when she was walking. Now, I simply had her put her hands either side of her lower ribs, and I simply had her breathe in very slowly for a count of five and out slowly for a count of five. And within about a minute, her blood oxygen saturation increased to 96%. So, simply by changing breathing patterns, nose, slow, and low, it's improving alveolar ventilation. And how many people at altitude will naturally revert to mouth breathing, fast breathing, shallow breathing because of the feeling of suffocation. Number one, it doesn't get rid of the feeling of suffocation. Number two, it's inefficient and it's uneconomical.
3: Thank you very much. That's super
4: helpful.
2: You're very welcome, Susan. Let's do one more.
4: Hi, Dave. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, Hi Patrick um my, hello. Uh, my question is related to um, iron deficiency so I heard that um, if you have iron deficiency then you the ability to for the blood to carry the oxygen is lower and that you can run out of breath sooner um, so I noticed that when I play tennis that I you know we keep running laterally and then. Suddenly you find out of breath and you feel tired uh, and you lose the point sometimes. So does deep breathing alone or your breathing alone help to fix the problem, or we should also look at iron deficiency and use any supplements or anything else support
1: so so basically you're saying do we need to to make sure we have enough iron in the blood for breathing to work?
2: It could be Stephen, but I'm not sure that's been honest with you. Um, you know, one person might have a breath hold time, a bolt score of 16 seconds anyway, and have adequate iron. So I think there's more you'll have to do just a little bit of investigation. And I'm not sure either, depending on the extent of iron deficiency, would breathing be sufficient with the breath? We can improve efficiency but we also need to you know, make sure that we've got ad- adequate iron as, as a carrier of oxygen. You,
1: you can train hemoglobin affinity for oxygen um, yes. with things like intermittent hypoxic training, some of the stuff we do at Upgrade Labs. But uh, I think there's probably a, some level where if you just don't have enough iron, it doesn't matter what happens, but it's probably lower than you'd think. And just for people who hear this, If you're looking at anemia and you're not looking at copper and iron together, you're doing it wrong (laughs) because a lot of people think they're iron deficient or copper deficient inside their cells. So you got to look at both of those. Just a little extra biohacking point. Patrick, thank you for all of your knowledge, your 20 plus years of studying breathing with maniacal focus that only a mouth taped person could have and doing good in the world with it. So, And thanks for inspiring me to pay more attention to breathing uh, several years ago.
2: Yeah, no, Dave, and thanks so much for you as well, because this is how the information is getting out there. So so I'm very grateful. It's been great. Enjoyed talking to you.
1: Enjoyed it as well. Upgrade Collective, thanks for the intelligent questions and keeping me company on the show. And I will see you all in the
0: next one. A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.